word of God, and I thank you how it is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, and that it can lead and guide me into all truth and keep me from temptation. There's so much power in your word, and I thank you, Jesus, Lord, that you are able to help and to work in us through your word, and I pray that you would do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We have been... Um, Oddly enough, from this lesson to the lesson, the the series before this one, we've kind of been stuck on the kings, um, and I know I've been talking about that, and we're we're still going to be in a place where we're talking about those somewhat obscure books in the Old Testament that can get a little confusing on the timeline. I'm going to grab my Bible. Um. So we have, you have in your Old Testament um, different categories of books, in your New Testament too. But in your Old Testament you have um, historical books, poetic books, the books of the prophets. Um, and so the part that we're kind of looking at and have been looking at, we've been looking at Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, um, and it's not that, that we're studying those books. It just so happens that the topics we've been on and the stories that we've been looking at fall into those books of the Bible. And I feel like um, as somebody who has been, who was born into Christianity in a family where the Bible was very valued, even in that, um, these books get a little sticky trying to keep them in line. Like when did this happen? you know, where am I going back and forth? Because what happens is once you get past the book of Esther, then you go into the book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Um, those books are poetic books, and they're not so much about what is happening. Even the book of Job, it is not in order of how it happened. It's there because it's a very poetic book. And so it's a book of poetry is what it's considered. So when you read the Old Testament from the front to the back, um, you are not reading a story that happens in order once you get past a certain point. In fact, sometimes what happens when you're reading is you read a story and then you read it again. So you're like, didn't I already read this? I read Kings and now it's happening again in Chronicles. You know, what in the world's going on? Um, and then you'll read the prophets and you see the same things. Those prophets are talking to Kings that they talked about. So, so what is happening? It's just an overlapping. It's, it's kind of, it's almost like the gospels in the sense of you are getting the same story from a different perspective, um, which is really helpful, but a little bit confusing sometimes. And so we're going to be talking today about those end books in his, in the history of the old Testament. And, and when I say the history of it's the history of the Israelites is what that is. It's not really focusing on any other nation or any other race of people. It's the history of the Israelites. And the Bible doesn't really open up to anybody else until we get to really to the book of Acts. Um, I mean, the Gospels a little bit, but really the book of Acts is the first time where we are invited in, I guess you could say. It becomes about our history. Now, what's very interesting is as Christians, we have been adopted into the family of God's chosen people, into the family of Abraham, the Bible even says. And so that means that as a Christian, the Old Testament is my history too. And so it's very important 
to know because there are so many things that line up, and we'll talk a little bit about that today, that even I can look back into the Old Testament and say, well, that's why God did that. You t okay, here's an example. Um, have you ever heard of the Passover? So what happened, the Passover, it's referring to what happened at the final plague. Um, the, the oldest child would be killed. This is in, in Egypt, there were the plagues. This is the final plague. The oldest child would, would be killed unless you put blood over your doorpost. If you put blood over your doorpost, death would pass by your family and the oldest child in your family would not be killed. Um, and so we see God's people, the Israelites, who, who were slaves at the time, putting the blood over the doorpost. And what were they commanded to do? They kill a lamb at the door, eat the lamb, you know, be standing, be ready to go. There was a lot of types and shadows of things. But that lamb, you can go into the New Testament and you see what does John, what was it that saved people? It was the blood of the lamb, right? They put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost and it saved the life of their oldest child. And so you flip over to the New Testament and you see John the Baptist. And what does he say in, as introduction of Jesus Christ? Behold the lamb of God, which take away the sins of the world. Now, everybody who was listening who had ever um, given a sacrifice or taken part in the Passover, their mind goes to the lamb. This is the blood of the lamb. It all makes sense. It all starts to make sense then because you're talking about the blood of Jesus Christ who John declares, as, and this is true, John declares to be the lamb of God. His blood would take away the sins of the world and save our lives in the same way that the Passover lamb would do for the children of Israel. So there's all of that richness of the word of God follows over into the New Testament. And that's why the Old Testament and the New Testament are equally important. So um, did not expect to say all that, but um, I think it just helps us to understand, like, why are we even looking at these stories? What do they even mean? Why would we, you know, I mean, it, sure, it helps. You know, Pastor preached a wonderful message on the th three Hebrew boys a few weeks ago, and what a great, inspiring message that was um, about our children going back to school and what they face. And it was a great message, but it's not just inspirational stories that we can go back to. There are things that just take, can take you deeper into your purpose and the plan that God has for you right now, even in the Old Testament. So we're going to be talking... I know we were talking about the prophet Jeremiah um, and the kings with all the names last week. Um, I, don't ask me to recite them now. Um, but <laughs> we, I did tell you that we were looking at the end of Israel's time in Jerusalem. And so now we're going to be moving on. So I'm going to give you some dates. What we looked at last week was um, between 628 and 580 B.C., Okay, and that was Jeremiah giving all his prophets, and then the prophecies and the seven years, seventy years that they these people would go into captivity, and that is exactly what would happen. So Babylon would overtake them, and captives were taken to Babylon, and this starts happening at 606 BC. Okay, so, and this is important historically. We have these records, and it's important for us to know this. And this is the point at which we see the story of Daniel as in Daniel in the lion's den, okay? Um, and we see his story start to unravel right here about this time, as a, sla as a slave or someone who is taken away. Then we start to see that in 597, 
uh, BC, there are more captives taken from Jerusalem. And this is where Ezekiel, as in the book of Ezekiel, is taken. And we see his, start, his story start to unfold. Now, a lot of you may know the story of Ezekiel. He's the one that spoke to the dry bones and then they came to life. If you know that story, it's a great story in the Bible. Um, but this is who we're talking about here. And we are seeing the prophecies that are given before they're taken into captivity unfold at this point. And so then we go a little bit farther um, into 586 BC and the temple has fallen. Nebuchadnezzar, the king has, everything is destroyed. There's nothing left there. They're gone. Um, and so there is only a very small amount of people left in Jerusalem at this point. But most others are taken captivity. Now it's, it's a little bit different than, um, than what happens to them as slaves in Egypt. Number one, they willingly went to Egypt. Uh, there wasn't that many of them, but they willingly went because there was a famine, and this is where they ended up, in Egypt, and then 400 years we see them as slaves. But what happens here is these kings that have overtaken Israel, um, the ones with the funny names like Nebuchadnezzar, that have overtaken Israel, um, their plan is world domination, okay? Um, their plan is that everywhere in the world, the culture would match up with their culture, the religions would match up with their religions, that the people that are in those different lands would serve that king in the way that he wants his nation to serve. So that's the goal here. It's not so much that we're going to make them slaves. The goal is that the whole world would be one under this king. So that's what starts to happen. And to make that happen, they take people from their home to Babylon, to the place where they can teach them their cultures or they can integrate them into their cultures and integrate them into um, the way of life that the king thinks should be happening. And that's what's happened to the people of Israel at this point is they have been integrated into the life of Babylon, but they're a little unique. And we see throughout the stories, because this is the place right now, the part that I'm talking about in the Bible is the same part where we see Daniel in the lion's den. We see the three Hebrew boys. We see stories like Esther, you know, the story of Esther. This is that timeline. It's all in there. In our, I think in my mind, and you might not be like me, but in my mind, especially as a child or someone kind of learning more and more about the Bible, I think of these stories as worlds apart, years apart. I see no, con I don't even barely see a connection, but the truth is it's happening in the same place. It's happening not that far apart from each other. In fact, um, in less time that it has taken for America to be the nation that we are for these years that we've been a nation, um, it, it was much less time for this to happen, what I'm talking about. Um, in fact, there are Bible characters that we talk about that may have known each other or known of each other, but there's really not that much time because only 70 years go by and we get to the place where um, we see that the Israelites are allowed to start going back to where they came from, going back to Israel. And then you go down and 68 years later, so at this point, they have been in captivity or they have been in Babylon away from their home for 70 years. And you skip down 68 years later and you get to Esther, the story of Esther. 
And then you skip down 25 years later and you get to the story of Nehemiah, okay? Um, and Nehemiah being the one who goes back to build the, the, the walls of the city. And then you get to the empty page in your Bible. So there's just, it, what happens is Alexander the Great. If you're wondering in history what happens, it's Alexander the Great. Um, now, in my opinion, as somebody who um, really, really loves the Word of God as a history book, okay? I, I love the Word of God as, as the life-changing Word of God, and it's changed my life, but I also love history. And so it's important for me and maybe for some of you it's not. I like knowing the timeline and the things that are going on because it just gives me almost a sense of comfort that what has happened on the world stage is very documented to the point of it lines up with what we read in our Bible. You can go to completely obscure resources and find references to people like Daniel or people like Nehemiah, or people like Ezra, who we're gonna talk about today, you will find references to them in history because they are there. There's no doubting it. You know, there is no pushing it off. Historically, these men existed and they did what the Bible tells us they did. So we're gonna talk a little bit today about Ezra. And I'm gonna read a little bit something from a devotion that I read. Um, earlier this week about Ezra, and it says this, study, obey, teach. Study, obey, teach. That order of those three words is essential. You should not teach what you have not put into practice, and you cannot effectively practice what you have not studied. Ezra knew the word of God. He was a scribe. He knew that social and religious restoration required personal application and obedience to God's word. Now, how many times do we, as people who follow Jesus, marry the things of this world to our lives, even though we are called to be set apart? We cannot find restoration, renewal or revival while we hold on to things that Jesus died to free us from. Obedience is the glue that binds the word of God to our hearts. It binds us to other believers. If prayer is incense, then discipline is the smoke from that incense. It fills our lives and permeates the world around us. Obedience is the evidence of our faith, the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in us. Discipline is the translation of scripture into our lives. We cannot obey God's word on our own. Jesus didn't die and come back to life so that we could live better lives as if we could follow God on our own. He was slain for our transgressions. He was raised for our sanctification so that he that, so that we could live the life of a Christian through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Obedience is studying the word of God and doing what it says by the power of the Holy Ghost living in, in us. And if that seems impossible, remember that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in each one of us, accomplishing more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. Now, this is very important and I'm kind of giving you the point before we get into the lesson. But what we know about Ezra, who we're going to talk about, 
and about the people and, and them following after him is that he knew the word of God and at a great cost obeyed the word of God. And it was evident in his life and in the obedience of the people that followed him. So I'm going to turn, we're going to turn to Ezra chapter three and look at um, kind of the, the crux of the story today. Ezra chapter three, verse six says this is our focus verse. And what I want you to do is just on what we talked about, what I spoke just a minute ago about um, listening and obeying the word of God, studying it, knowing it, and then teaching it and having that discipline is just so important as we look at the life of this man and the life of the people that were affected by what he was called to do. So Ezra 3, 6 says this, from the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. We're going to talk today a little bit about how God's house should be filled with a sacrifice of worship. And I do believe that you can, this week, challenge yourself to read the entire book of Ezra. It's only 10 chapters long, and some of them are short. So I challenge you to do that. So we see over and over again in the life of Ezra what I just read about, how there is a love and a desire to know and obey God's word. And how it is tied to the worship that is offered by Israel when they return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So remember, they are on the timeline. They're coming back to Israel to rebuild what has been broken down. So how does this happen? How do they get to that place? Well, there is Cyrus, an emperor of Persia, who they're, they're under. Here's where he's at. He's sitting in his palace in Babylon pondering what he considers an unexpected idea that had come to him, a thought that he could not shake off. I must build a temple in Jerusalem to Yahweh, the God of the Jews. Now, again, this is not just coming out of nowhere. This is now at a time where these, the Babylons have benefited through living through some of the Sunday school stories that we recognize. Things have been happening that have pointed to the fact that the God of Daniel and the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the God of these disciplined people is very different than any God that they serve. So King Nebuchadnezzar had captured and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And in time, the Persian Empire rises, ruled by Cyrus, and conquered the Babylonians. So this is where we're at in this. This is where we're gonna start off with the story of Cyrus. Yahweh led Cyrus, now that's the Lord, and I, I think in this lesson they use that reference so that, um, because it is in the Old Testament, but the Lord leads Cyrus to the conviction that the Lord, God, who they would call Yahweh possibly, has dominion over nations, and he has given that dominion to Cyrus. And so he ought to build a temple in Jerusalem. So Cyrus believes that as the world power, the king of the world, and that's kind of what he was at. He was the king of the world at this point. He, has, he acknowledges that he is only king because this great God, Yahweh, has allowed him to be. 
Now Cyrus has no idea that God is using him to fulfill his plan for his people. And when the Jews had been exiled to Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied it would be for 70 years and that God would use another kingdom to destroy Babylon, which would begin the process of the Jews returning to their homeland. And Persia was that kingdom. So convinced he ought to build this temple, Cyrus proclaims that any Jew was free to go back to Judah and help rebuild, and he made sure that they did not leave empty-handed. He commands their neighbors to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So I think this is very interesting because I feel that it's very reminiscent of when they left Egypt. Remember, they took things from their neighbors and from whoever would give it to them. Well, the same thing is happening again. The Lord is blessing his people and preparing them to rebuild as a people through the wealth of their neighbors, through the wealth of people who don't believe as they believe. So King Cyrus also brings out the articles of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem. So when they would take over a place like that, one of the most important things that they would take would be the things that would be in their temple, the things that were consecrated to the, to the God of whatever people they were conquering. And so they actually still had those important pieces of furniture and those important tools that they had taken from Jerusalem. And King Cyrus gives them back to the people because he knows they have a place and a purpose in the temple that they are going to have to build. So just as God stirs up the heart of Cyrus, he stirs up the heart of the heads of the houses of Judah and Benjamin, the tribes, and the priests and the Levites, along with many other Jews. And Ezra chapter one tells us that they rose up to go up and build the house of the Lord. It had been a long time in the land of exiles and the Jews had been unable to truly worship God according to his word. Now, why is that? Because if they were going to worship him according to his word, they would need to be in the location <laughs> in Jerusalem at the temple that was set up in a very specific way. In the Old Testament, there was not access to the presence of the Lord that we have today where you could just in any moment, in any time, speak the name of Jesus, be in his presence, feel that power. They didn't have that. It was very specific. You enter in, you get to this part, you step past this, you've washed your hands, you move on. If you've ever done the tabernacle plan, it's very interesting. Um, but they had to follow that pattern. And as long as they were living outside of Jerusalem, number one, they were in the wrong location because it had to be built there. Number two, they, they didn't have the right progression, the, the right process. Nobody had that. So all of these years, they'd never been able to worship as they had been commanded. Now, can you imagine as a person who was very consecrated to God, knowing that you could not fulfill what he had asked, you could not do it. You could not fulfill what he'd ask you to do. And so going back for them was so much more than coming home. It was so much more than just, well, this is where my grandfather built a house and now I'm going to build my house here. It was an experience, a time that they could go back and worship the Lord as he had commanded them to. And so under the leadership of Zerubbabel, we find that 42,000 Jews, along with, this is interesting, 7,000 of their servants go back to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to their cities. And about three months after they arrive, in the seventh month, Tishri, 
which is September and October, when that had come, the people gathered themselves together in Jerusalem. And Joshua, the high priest, along with some of his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, who was the civil leader or the governor of that time, along with his associates, built a new altar on the very spot that the altar had been, the original altar had been, in order to offer burnt offerings to the Lord according to the law of Moses. They built it on the exact spot, which is very significant to their obedience and their knowledge. It's been many, many years. How did they, how did they know where it was? Everything looks different. Nothing's the same. It, nothing is the same. It's all torn down. And in their, they studied to figure out where it would be, and then they were obedient to where it was. I, I really do believe that sometimes we wave past these stories so quickly in the Bible without understanding how specific and how obedient these people were. To the T, to the they knew where it was. So the Israelites' first act of worship was to restore burnt offerings, specifically those that occurred in the morning and in the evening. And they were offered, these two sacrifices were offered for all the members of the community, and they were offerings of repentance, okay? In the law of Moses, these daily burnt offerings were means of covering people's sin and turning away God's wrath from them. And again, let's go back to that Passover lamb. Okay, the blood of the lamb was life-giving to the people at the Passover. And so when the Lord set up the law, there was contingencies for the fact that they could not, they, did, they couldn't do this. What I'm, so they couldn't say, oh Lord, this morning I pray that you would forgive me of my sins. I pray that you would cover those sins and I pray, God, that you would help me to turn away from those sins and not do them anymore. I can do that every morning. I can repent every day. I can do it every evening. I... And when I do that, I believe I, my sins are forgiven because the blood of Jesus Christ that was, that was shed on the cross gives me access to that forgiveness. They did not have that. And so in order for them to be cleaned and washed, because we have to be cleaned and washed of our sins, in order for that to happen, they had to daily offer real sacrifices. And so it was so important for them to give these sacrifices. That's what they started each morning and each evening. They were giving these sacrifices and being assured of God's grace and that their sins were being pushed back. So they were very significant that this started happening. So... Then they began to celebrate the feasts. And Tishri, this month that we talked about, it was the seventh month. And it was a month in which uh, they observed the Feast of the Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. Um, we don't really have time to talk about all of these, but they're there for you to read about in your, in your Bible. It seems appropriate that during this sacred month, they would not only restore these burnt offerings, but again celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and it was very much commanded in this portion of Ezra that the Feast of Tabernacles, they were to rejoice and they were to give thanks. Now, what was the Feast of Tabernacles? It was a remembrance of how God had brought them out of Egypt, okay? They were to put up tents or they were to put up temporary places to live or to have a meal. And they would go into these temporary places that they would build during the feasts and remember 
how they had been delivered from Egypt and how they had wandered for 40 years as nomads and lived in these tents and, and how they had been set free from that. And so again, the Lord is commanding them, you need to you need to worship during this feast. You need to worship during the Feast of the Tabernacle and remember that once again, I've brought you out. Once again, you're no longer in a land that is strange to you and you're able to come in and worship the Lord as you want. And so this is what um, Moses had written about the Feast of the Tabernacle in Leviticus 23:40. He said, you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. So why were they rejoicing? Why were they raving the fruit and the branches before the Lord? Because God had delivered them from Egyptian slavery. And this was a week-long reminder that God had delivered them. Now, I'm going to go back to the New Testament again. And I want you to somebody tell me, what was a time when this was happening? What I just described. Because what I just described was that they would take wave palms, that they would wave fruit and rejoice that they would wave leaves and rejoice, branches and rejoice. So somebody tell me, when did that happen in the New Testament? When Jesus came in, right? He came in on the donkey. We call it Palm Sunday. They're waving this. Now, if you would like see the significant to a people that every year would do this during the Feast of the Tabernacles, and now all of a sudden they're doing this for Jesus, there's a lot of significance in that. That is not at all what our Bible study is about. But just to take those moments to see, wow, how God lined up his word and how he so much pointed to everything that was going to happen and to who Jesus was and how significant these things are for us to know. It's significant for us to know these things. So worship has been restored. And now the foundation is going to be, be laid to the temple. Okay? So they rebuild the temple and first, what do you have to do when you build a building? You've got to lay a foundation, right? You've got to lay a foundation. And so even before they had done that, they begin these offerings and they begin this worship. There was a great deal of work to do, but they took care of worshiping him. Now, one thing that, uh, that our Bible study points out first, kind of first, is they, they, they worshiped him. They set up the altar and then before they took care of um, building up the altar or laying the foundation, they took care of some basic needs for their families. They built homes, for example, so they could simply survive. But once their basic needs were met, they went to fully restoring worship and relationship with God. That was their priority. They prayed and sang songs, and they worshiped him. And we see that happening. So they're pointing out in our lesson that we must make worship a priority. We must make it a priority. We have basic, we, everybody has basic needs, right? And we see those things happening. And I love that they give us an example of how they came in and took care of their basic needs. But then beyond that, the next thing that happened was the work of the Lord. Yes. So I'm going to go off and never get done. So here we go. We're going to come back. But we have to make worship our priority. There is a constant pull and a tug to distract us 
from worshiping the Lord by making other things seem more necessary or more desirable. But nothing can take the place of our worship. And nobody can make this happen for us. Our moods and our feelings cannot be our guide. We can't just worship when we feel like it. Our gratitude for God, covering our sins and saving us, should be the foundation for us choosing day by day to make worship our priority. We have got to make worship a priority. Like these people made worshiping him a priority. So after they had restored worship, the Jews began preparing for the work on the temple. They hired masons and carpenters, and they sent things to trade to the people of Tyre and Sidon to obtain cedar logs to use them for construction. They may have even hired workers from other places to make sure that the work was done um, well and that the work was done quickly. So in the second month of the second year, after they had arrived back in Jerusalem, the work began on the temple under the supervision of the Levites, so those that were over the temple, that took care of it. And the first task, of course, was to lay the foundation upon which the rest of the structure would be built. And I think this is really interesting how the Bible notates this. So when the workers had finished laying the final stone for the foundation, no doubt, Great joy sweeps through the Jewish people for as long as they had been without a temple. Now, let me tell you, I have physically experienced what they are talking about very recently. And I will never forget when the foundation was laid for this building. (laughs) It was a happy day. (laughs) I think that was the first time I was like, okay, it didn't look very big, but now it looks a little bit bigger. I get it now. It's bigger than than I thought it was going to be. But they see the foundation laid, and it's like, wow. There's no turning back. It's going to be here now. Something is going to be here. And so they have a heart for worship. When this foundation is laid, they begin to worship the Lord. The the priests in their vestments take up trumpets, and the Bible tells us that the sons of Asaph among the Levites took up cymbals ready to play for the Lord, and all this was done just as King David had described. As the trumpets were played and the cymbals clashed, they lifted up their voices and sang praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Ezra chapter 3 The King James verse says this, they sang together by course, or the New King James says this, they sang responsively. So the choir singers were divided into two groups, one singing a line and then the other group singing the next line. So on Wednesday we sang, oh, hallelujah, oh, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. That's what they were doing. (laughs) It's like a repeat. So the Bible gives us this very interesting insight into how they worshiped and this is one of the ways that they worshiped and so we see what they sang and if you go to psalm chapter 118 you can see there what they sang which i think again is something that we've been talking about if you can go through the psalm and match up the psalm with what's happening this is one of those times you could do that so psalm 118 verses 1 through 4 says this and imagine them singing this 
Thank God because he's good because, and I'm reading the message because I liked the message version. Um, it says, thank God because he's good because his love never quits. Tell the world, Israel, his love never quits. And you, clan of Aaron, tell the world, his love never quits. And you who fear God, join in, his love never quits. So that's not hard to imagine that, right? You have a song leader or one part of the choir saying this and the other part singing, his love never quits. So blessed are you who enter in God's name. From God's house, we bless you. God is God. He has bathed us in light, adorned the shrine with garlands, hang colored banners above the altar. You're my God, and I thank you. Oh, my God, I lift high your praise. Thank God. He's so good. His love never quits. So I just read verses 1 through 4 and then 26 through 29. There's a lot there in the middle, but we don't have time to read it all. But this is some of the things that they read about, and they were just rejoicing that forever he loved, his love just hadn't ended. And can you imagine, you know there was times when they were in Babylon that it did not feel like his love never quit. You know there were times when it did not feel like they were ever going to have a temple again. But here they were singing, his love never quits. And in seeing the foundation laid, the Jewish people were not just looking at foundation stones, but they recognized in these foundation stones God's goodness and his unfailing love towards them. Um, the King James and the New King James normally say this word as mercy. The Hebrew word translated thus does include the idea of compassion and forgiveness. But it is a richer term that refers to the Lord's covenant love towards his people, a love that will not fail. He was compassionate. The Lord was compassionate and forgiving because he is good. And he was in a covenant with these people. And he faithfully remained in that covenant. Even though they didn't. When they came back to covenant, who was there? The Lord. When they came back to obedience, who was there? The Lord. Now, for me personally, I can say that. When I came back to covenant, who was there? The Lord. When I came back to obedience, who was there? The Lord. Every time, no matter what, he was there. He was unmoved. Who was moved? I was moved. But he was unmoved. And that is... What we are seeing in this people, they are coming to the realization that we haven't been here and everything has been torn down. But when we have lined ourselves back up with obedience to the Lord and laying the foundation for what is truly important, there he is. And his love never fails. So they're shouting and they are singing. They are making a joyful noise, Ezra chapter 3 tells us. And the Bible doesn't say that the people were redirected to do it. It just spontaneously is an overflow of praise. They hear the trumpets, they hear the clashing cymbals and the singing in their hearts because this is happening inside with the Levites and the people that have been set up to do this. But the response of the people was filled and they began to sing praises. They began to worship even though it wasn't particularly their job. It's like when the worship team starts singing, it's their job to sing, but the congregation joins in out of an expression of praise to the Lord or worship to the Lord or hearts that are full. The Bible describes it as a noise, and God liked it. The effort that was given to their expression of thanksgiving and worship was a direct correlation. It was in relationship to what they had be been delivered from. 
And the question is, is the same true for us? The, the level of noise that they brought was in direct response to what they had been delivered from. And is the same true for us? Is my level of worship, or even is this trans noise, in response to what God has done for me? Now, I know I'm a loud person, okay, just in general. Did somebody just agree? Just kidding. It's, it's okay. I know. I've always been told my voice carries. <laughs> it's just a nice way of saying you're really loud. I used to have a friend that would talk to me like this on whichever side I was on. Like, your voice is very loud. <laughs> but it doesn't matter if you're like me or you're very quiet. Here's the truth. I'm going to pick on you, Sister Carmen, for a minute. Sister Carmen, you are, in my opinion, you're not a super loud person. Am I wrong? Is she loud? Nobody's disagreeing with me. She's, they're saying yes. But when you worship, it is in response and correlation to what God has done with your life. And even though when I'm talking to you, your voice may not be very loud, when you're standing here and worshiping the Lord, you are loud and clear, and I can hear you all the way up here. Now, it's not her personality so much to be loud. But God's done a lot for you, hasn't he? And you respond with as much energy as you can possibly give him. Or at least that's the way it appears from the outside. I'm glad you were there. It's a good, I know everybody's like, you're loud, Sister Brown. You can't use yourself as an example. But we must respond in worship, in correlation to what he's done with us, in however we can. Like he had done so much for the Jewish people, he's done so much for us. And they worshiped, and we should worship. So I must commit to make my house, my life a house of worship. And worship should fill our lives outside of the church as well. I know some of you were trying, like, you're like, Sister Brown, what you're talking about is not worship. That's praise. Okay, that's a different lesson. But listen, all of our life should be a sacrifice of worship to God. Because his unfailing love is not limited by time and by space. It's not limited to church. His grace and love towards us is all-encompassing, touching every aspect of our lives. Therefore, our worship should be all-encompassing over everything in our lives. This is a problem that we have as Christians. We compartmentalize God to this part of our lives to Sunday or Wednesday or ladies' meeting or men's meeting. But if you do, go back to the Old Testament and you ask yourself, what part of their lives did God's chosen people, what part of their lives did he touch? By command. Now let me tell you something. This was by command, by law, which tells me that it was God's desire to touch every part of their life. He wrote the law in a way that it touched every part of his chosen people's life. Now what's happened? We've crossed over into the New Testament and we've walked in this place of grace and somehow we think that because we live in grace 
It is not still God's desire to touch every part of our life, but God's nature has not changed. It is still God's desire to touch every part of our lives, that he would not be compartmentalized, that you can be God when I'm at home and you can be God when I'm at church, but if you could just not be God while I'm at work because I have a job to do and it's really inconvenient if you get involved, God. But God is the same as he was in the Old Testament. And we've just been grafted into the family. And his desire is that in every area of our lives, we would worship him, never compartmentalizing anything. And I've gone over, but the Lord wanted to talk to us for a minute, so it's okay. So now we're going to go in and do the obvious worship. We're going to worship the Lord in the obvious way. But the real challenge comes when you leave here today, will you willingly worship him with every area of your life as he desires you to do so? I will try in Jesus' name.